0: So welcome to The Gift of the Struggle. I am here with um, two very exciting guests uh, because we have both, all three of us, been through a little bit of a uh, thing together even though we have never met. Um, So I'm here with Jared Dapier, who wrote Mr. Watson's Chickens, which was the center of our little controversy down here in Alabama and others across the country um, and speaks to a much larger picture of what's going on in the world today. So uh, in addition to that, he's written Jazz for Lunch um he's got a book coming out um that's in pre-order right now the most haunted house in america um when he's not writing he is a young adult librarian with more than 10 years of experience um we also have andrea surumi um andrea is an author illustrator and cartoonist originally from new york who's now living in philadelphia uh, with their spouse and dog um written and illustrated books including accident crab cake and I'm on it. Both of them have websites that are attached to their names and you can look up and find all of their books and
1: creative endeavors there. So welcome to the Gift of the Struggle, guys. Hi, yeah, thank you for, for having us. Thanks for having us. We're really happy to be here and to be able to connect with you. Yeah,
0: I am, I'm so appreciative of both of you and I think it's uh, Mr. Watson's Chickens is kind of how we met. So my local library, had someone complain that it was in the library um, and wanted it removed. So I went to bat for uh, keeping it in the library. And unexpectedly, we had a victory. Uh, they did not ban it and they did not censor it and they did not label it, which were all things on the table. Um, and I had Jarrett write a letter for me uh, along with 16 other people in our community that, um, that were very passionate about not banning and censoring books. And that book should uh, be available to all in the library for all. So let's talk really quickly, Jared. what made you write this book? Because you do not belong to the LGBTQ community, is that right? And so the the premise of the book is is basically a story about a couple who happen to be men who are overrun by chickens. The only
1: (laughs) consequential (laughs)
0: thing is is that they happen to be men. If you substituted a woman for one of the men, nobody would have said a word. It was nothing inappropriate. It was nothing overtly sexual, nothing um it's just a story about being overrun with chickens so what what made you write that and what made you
1: um create the characters as two men in a relationship So, it came about very naturally in a couple ways um number one lgbtq uh folks and issues have always been incredibly close to my heart i would say going back as as early as maybe 14 years old, when I really, I think, became conscious of um, bigotry and um, how the fact that I had queer friends and, um, and that, you know, the world did not treat them the way they treated me. Mm-hmm. And um, that really grew throughout high school, grew throughout college, um, becoming a, a really involved member of a really small independent theater company in college, um, deepened it, Uh, we did a lot of LGBTQ uh, uh, themed and uh, themed plays um, that included a lot of characters who were gay. um, And I just worked with a lot of artists um, who were part of that community. Mm -hmm. And um, so really, I'd say like I grew a deep love for a lot of people um, who identified as lesbian, gay, bi, um, or trans. And um, that has sort of it's just settled in my heart as something that is, um, just always been a natural part of me. And, you know, into adulthood, I then became friends with like very, very close friends with uh, folks in Chicago who, um, one was lesbian and one was a gay man. Um, he subsequently passed, um, from complications related to AIDS. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my, my friend who, um, was lesbian died early in the pandemic. Um, uh, from complication uh, from cancer, it was stomach cancer, but um, I still sort of I view her as a also a uh, a victim of COVID as well because she was not able to access care um, that she could have otherwise, mm-hmm. um, and the onset of the pandemic really really like intersected with like three crucial months for her prognosis. Um, yeah. So there's been loss, but also, you know, among folks who haven't passed on, people I still love and I'm deep, deep friends with. Um, uh, so it's really just like LGBTQ folks, people in that community have always been close to my heart and connected. I've been connected to them very closely. Um, but the book itself grew from a dream that I had in 2017, where I dreamt that I was um, sitting in a first grade classroom and I was an author doing an author visit reading to first graders and I was reading a book called Mr. Watson's Chickens and I was reading specifically the scene where they lose all their chickens at the fair mm-hmm. and it was Mr. Watson and this other guy who was there helping Mr. Watson so it was clear from the dream like there were two men I just knew one of them was named Mr. Watson and uh, uh, I dreamt about some interactions with some folks at the fair and some of those lines from the dreamer in the book, which just to this day amazes me. And then, um, I woke up in the middle of the night, wrote down the title, wrote down some of the lines I remembered. Um, but then when I started working on it, I you know kept asking myself, who is this other person? And, and so the book always featured two men. Um, mm. I very briefly, I don't think I even considered that they were brothers or just friends. Um, someone had suggested to me, oh, make them brothers. But I was like pretty clear in my mind that this was not another Mr. Watson. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I basically hit on it pretty early as I started developing the story that, um, oh, they live together and they're in love. And, you know, it can't just be about the overwhelming chicken problem. There had to be some stakes to that. And the stakes ended up being that um, one of them had, gotten himself in too deep to a specific problem uh this being a um collection of chickens that was just uh out mm-hmm. of control and it was threatening their relationship and so that really gave legs to the to the story um
0: yeah the line I love I love you more than I love my chickens so I'll get rid of them
1: or whatever it was right yeah Mr. <laughs> Watson loved his chickens but he loved Mr. Nelson more Without exactly him, yeah his heart would be a broken egg oh yeah <laughs> and um, <laughs> And, and so, yeah, it, that's, it's, so it really did arise naturally. I mean, in terms of like my own feelings and connection to uh, queer folks, but also um, naturally as in like as natural as having a dream at night. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's where I came from.
0: I love it. Cause it's just a natural part of the way you think, you know, that everybody deserve has a story. So, so Andrea, how, how did you get involved in illustrating this with Jarrett and, um, what appealed about, what about the story appealed to you?
2: Um, so like a lot of the way that I get work is that my agent, people will approach my agent, um, editors or editors will contact my agent and um, say like, oh, I have a manuscript. Uh, would Andrea be free or interested? Or, you know, and I would get a chance to read it and, you know, make a decision, you know, based on that. And so Stephen sent me, uh, all right, your, your manuscript. <laughs> uh, I, that heart heart would be a broken egg line like really like grabbed me like right away too but um so like it's it it was a really funny book uh it was there was so much but I love I love making funny books a lot of the stuff I do is comedy like the potential for like chicken mayhem was you know (laughs) off the charts you're like oh we could do this we could do that like I knew it was a good idea when like I started already like thinking of jokes and things that could be fun Mm -hmm. and then also like I really really got Super excited to do a book about um, two cis gay men in a relationship, and to be able to also fill the book with like references to queer children's book illustrators and writers um, in the kidlit community that um, have been inspirations to me, and then other aspects of queer culture, and just really celebrate—you know—just have this joyous celebration and representation of of you know one aspect, one small aspect of queer life, <laughs> uh, which is not like necessarily the focus of the book, but to be able to do that. So I was born in like 1985, right? And that's like right in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, like Mm -hmm. grew up, I remember like, I remember like intersecting with uh, what is, seeing that line of like, what is allowed publicly to talk about and to depict Mm -hmm. um, with queer culture and what is not, and what has always existed, but just hasn't been able to be in mainstream. Um, And I remember, like they're still having an issue with the gay penguin book, the tango makes three, like two penguins fall in love and have an egg. Like it's still like a consistently banned book. Um, uh, I learned about, you know, I I learned about uh, a lot of like censorship and like everyone kind of like, as you grow up, you know, from a child to an adult, you become very, very aware of the rules and aware of like what is allowable and what is not allowable and what is, what is safe and not safe? And um, I, at the time, you know, did not know, I did not have the vocabulary to identify myself as non-binary, which I do now, but um, it was something I was always kind of aware of, especially for my friends who were queer and um, my teachers who are queer. Um, my art teacher who I had made a big difference in my life was a lesbian. Like, you just, like, you pay attention as a kid and you observe stuff. Like, uh, you know, as my Spanish teacher, he's in a relationship with my mom's hairdresser. He's not out at school. Like, it's a, it's a secret, it has to be a secret. And like, the pernicious thing about like about um, systemic oppression is just how everyday it is and how you don't question it until someone questions it. Like, you just learn the rules to like, keep your head down. And you're like, of course he can't be out at school. It's not safe for him to be out at school. And then, you know, I think about that now and just think how horrible, like he's in a loving relationship with this this guy who's also awesome. And what's wrong with that? Like, why is that such an explosive thing that he could lose his job, lose his, you know, livelihood, lose his friends, lose anything like that. What is that? What, who, who gets protected by these things and who is exposed by these things too? So, Like even like, you know, 2020, I guess 2020 is working on your book, Jared like in 2020, there's, there are plenty of other books about uh, queer people, not as many as there should be, of course, but um, had come out, you know, the conversation has evolved. Um, In children's literature, especially with picture books, like early readers, picture books, younger things, younger uh, forms of children's literature, Um, there, this is not like the first picture book that features, you know, a queer couple, not by a long shot. But I did have this moment when I, I, you know, wrote back to my agent being like, "Yes, I want to do this book." Where I was like, "Is this going to be allowed? Like, is this going to be okay?" And like, I think encountering friction, encountering moments like that in your life, it's it's interesting and powerful to be mindful of those moments and be like, "Okay, why am I thinking that? Why is that happening?" And then think about what the stakes are. And the stakes are are queer people allowed to be people, and are we allowed to be open about that? To like everyone, youngest readers, queer people, queer kids, non queer kids, everyone in the community, queer people are people. Let's make the book. And I was really excited, especially because um, I, as an illustrator, get a lot of leeway and a lot of freedom um, in being able to suggest things and creating this world and building out this world of their house and where they would live and what they would look like and, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of clothes they would wear. And I really wanted one of them to be Asian because I, you know, I'm uh, half Japanese myself and growing up, like, there's a very it's very very complicated but like uh, it's very hard to find uh, Asian role models and media in general but especially queer Asian role models It's very 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 hard. So Jarrett was on board. Our wonderful editor Taylor Norman was on board. It was it was wonderful and it got me even more excited to work on this story.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's an it's an amazing thing because there's representation in the book that's beyond that. I think there's a character in a wheelchair and so there, there there's representation intentional representation, you can see it, that it was so well thought out in that book. And I think that, you know, the people who don't understand, I, when I was speaking to the city council, I said, you know, if my child had seen a book that represented him, how much more normal would he have felt earlier? Mm -hmm. You know, when you don't see anybody who looks like you, you are made to feel like you are an outcast or an outlier, not, not normal, you know? And, One of the comments from the panel was, you know, sexualizing our children. And I said, well, actually, the only people sexualizing the children are you. Uh, Because and, and as a parent of a gay child, that really ticks me off. Like you were sexualizing him before he was a sexual human. Children at certain ages, if you listen. So I started interviewing a lot of LGBTQ people. Um, in the community a few years ago, just about their experience and finding commonalities or differences or what they've been through is in the South. And generally the stories follow sexual maturation. So my child says, in elementary school, I kind of felt different, but I didn't really know what it was. By middle school, I had figured it out. And by high school, I had accepted it as who I was. Now, whether or not he came out was a different story. He, you know, That took him another couple of years. But it follows the sexual maturity of, of, in the physicality children in fifth grade and below really aren't sexual. They might like a boy or a girl, but they're not, they don't really do anything about it. Right. So I think you're, you're putting a sexual connotation on them before they are mature enough to have one themselves and to have identified what that is and who they're attracted to or who they are and those things. So I'm like, actually, I'm kind of offended that you are putting this sexualization on these kids who aren't old enough to handle it. And when my kids asked, about <laughs> the, the first time they ever asked me about gay people or whatever was when they watched Glee oh, and they definitely. were in elementary school. And they, one of them just said, Hey, what's up with that? And I said, Oh, sometimes boys like boys and girls like girls. And they said, Oh, and moved right along. That was the end of the conversation because at that age, that was all they needed to know. And I did, you don't make it into a big sexual conversation. You don't make it about anything, but boys like boys and girls like girls or boys like girls or whatever because at that age that's all they know right yeah so what is important to both of you about representation because clearly that was something that you were going for I mean I know that it came from a dream and it was a very natural thing (laughs) but when you decide to go forth into the world with it there has to be some
1: intention about representation
0: right yeah so where was your mind on that
1: Jared I think that Number one, I want to say what you just said about adult sexualizing children, especially through this fight against books that they want to remove mm-hmm. is such an important point. And it, and it is it is so spot on. And it's something that I think is apparent everywhere. And you see it in bathroom bills. Mm-hmm. You see it in the language that people use, um, trying to humanize um, kids who are who um, uh, are gender nonconforming or who are trans. And um, it is. It absolutely stems from the adults who are projecting. And mm. there's a lot of disturbed thought, uh, thought behind a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I think, disturbed psyches behind it. Um, and then, uh, like I always say, with people, when it comes to censorship, um, a lot of censorship stems from something inside a person that's even deeper than the bigotry that they're showing on the surface. Um, and it could be about something entirely different deep down inside them, but this is how they're expressing it. And it's, it's absolutely unacceptable. Um, but when it comes to representation, I, I feel like I number one could listen to Andrea talk about how they made the, the book um, all day <laughs> and, and what Andrea thinks <laughs> about it and, and why it looks the way it does um, because it was a dream come true for me to uh-huh. see, well, for one, as soon as we, I keep looking back here because I have Andrea's books back there, but I'm gonna like <laughs> knock a million things down if I, <laughs> if I grab I them. Um, them. But as soon as we saw Accident by Andrea and I saw uh, Andrea's penchant and talent for uh, uh, depicting mayhem, I was like, this, <laughs> is, this is it. This is the illustrator, we have to have Andrea. Um, but it was an even more, and, and Andrea of course captured wonderful chicken mayhem but it was an even more um uh just ideal pairing i think because of so much more that andrea brought to it specifically um the things that they just talked about but um when it comes to representation i think i think it's uh crucial that um children's books and especially picture books um normalize normalize i was saying this last week that i don't of course, the word diversity is very important. Human life is diverse. Um, I've been thinking about the phrase, you know, if you've met a person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to think, I wonder if you could apply that to basically everybody. You've met one human, you've met one human, mm-hmm. um, truly, on if you were to truly investigate who that person is and their experiences and how they've been created to be the person they are. Um, that said, um, the, the only problem I have with diversity as a word is just number one, the way it's being weaponized. Yeah. Um, and also that uh, by weaponizing it, it flattens the sort of depth and complexity that the word um, represents. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been starting to say like, I want picture books to normalize and celebrate humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's just another way of saying normalizing and celebrating diversity and so yeah I could have just thought oh that's kind of cool but yeah they're brothers or just friends and this is a buddy helping another buddy with his chicken problem Um, but it just it didn't go that way because I wanted to write something I was writing something with love and um, but when it comes to and so the the relationship naturally grew out of that but Yes, representation was intentional because I thought and and this is sort of like the the um, flip side of what you said about adults sexualizing children is it's the opposite that's going on in this book. It's showing two people who are in love, which is natural and normal and who are reacting to an overwhelming chicken problem in the same way that. Mm a couple that was heterosexual, but one person's trans and one person's cisgender um, or a lesbian couple or just a cisgender heterosexual couple would react to this many chickens in their house. And so kids seeing two loving people um, dealing with an quote unquote everyday thing um, (laughs) to me was very, very important to try and achieve because um when kids at three four five years old see a story and here's just the fact of the matter it's two people who are living together and in love and here's the real story um these chickens I think that it um helps children to grow up to be more accepting and loving and just understanding that Mm -hmm. humanity is diverse and always will be and should be because it's beautiful
0: yeah I, I absolutely think you're right and I think that um children aren't the ones doing this children learn this from the adults who are doing this clearly and when you say something like sometimes boys like boys or girls like girls they don't react because they don't care they're just thinking oh okay i get it move on but you know what you say about diversity is so interesting because um and, and if you've met one human you've met one human in all their experience when luke went away to college <laughs> he he joined all of you he took a bunch of social um Classes. So it was like b- Black and the Black experience and gay experience. There's some, I mean, several different ones. I can't even remember all the titles, but they were forward thinking, nice classes that you could only get in college. And so he ends up in a bunch of groups of people that are diverse and a lot of LGBTQ people. And in Spanish for Alabama, nobody comes out till they leave. So his community was zero really yeah. uh, until he left. So he goes, he calls me up one day from school and he's like, Mom. I met all these gay people and I don't, I don't like them all. <laughs> he said, "Well, I don't like all straight people. Luke. Welcome to community." <laughs> yeah. and I think he thought his his worldview was so limited in his experience yeah. that I think he just thought, "Well, we're all on the same boat, so we're all going to get along and like each other." Right. And some of them were jerks, just like anybody else. And I was like, "Well." welcome to real life. <laughs> like, but it cracked me up. I was like, poor Luke just thought every gay person was going to be his best friend. And some of them
1: were assholes, just like everybody else. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and one thing, um, Andrea, I I think you could maybe speak to this, or I'm sure you, you have memories that you can talk through. I was just thinking about um, something that you said, Andrea, about um, homophobia being sort of in the air or in the air you breathe as you, especially as we grew up. Um, I was born in 1979, so I came mm. of age early 90s. I loved coming up in the early 90s because of the music, because I, was, I, was a mus- I am a musician and, and was obsessed with it, but I'm trying to write something that is about teens in the early 90s. And I was brushing my teeth last night and I was thinking, is it even possible to realistically depict high school in the nineties without constant homophobia being part of the dialogue. It wouldn't be realistic if it wasn't, and it would almost need to be an author's note or something if you, if I didn't want to write that um, or make it part of it, there would, it's almost, like a disclaimer would have to be like, this isn't actually realistic because it was constant. And when that becomes constant, I was
0: born in 1971. So I was a little bit even before you. And it it just wasn't something that was talked about ever. Like years later, when Facebook came out, we were all like, Oh, that guy's with a guy, that guy's with a guy, that girl's a girl. You had a clue when you were in high school, but nobody ever would have said a word about it. And there were a
1: hundred different reasons I was, um, People called me gay or bullied me or called me the f-word and it was constant from you know seventh grade through 12th grade and then when I got to college of course I found a community that was way more um, open and, and inclusive but it was it was everywhere and so one way with children's literature is is you normalize by showing that this is uh, that everybody's got a story and yeah, this is just a normal part of being a human mm. and, and not something to diminish. But- yeah,
0: I mean, Andrea, what are your thoughts on all that what you just said?
2: There are so many thoughts. Yeah, I know. It's really interesting. I think um, the thing that I'm thinking most right now is just how systemic oppression, racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, you know, uh, xenophobia... It's about power, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, Asian people, Black people, Indigenous people, disabled people, queer people have always been people. They have always been human beings, mm-hmm. and there have been ones who have been really lovely and personable. And there are people who sometimes get salty, and then there are people who have been very terrible. You know, like they've always been human beings, and they are human beings, and they will be human beings in the future.
0: And you're not going to like them all. <laughs> you're not going
2: to like them all. You know that's true now. That's true in 1910. That's true in 1795. That's true in like BC 600, right? And that'll be true in AD, you know, 3600, whatever. Uh, The power, and they've, everyone's always existed, right? But where the power comes into play is, uh, what? Who is allowed to be on top? Who is allowed to? be desirable and comfortable and welcome. And it's it's very much, again, about is like who is welcome in a space, who is helped, who is assisted into a space, who is seen as an aberration, who is pushed out, who has 16,000 chances to screw up and who has like negative five chances to make one yeah. mistake. Um, the power of just having like, queer people exist in picture books and have Mm -hmm. like normalizing like when you exist is fighting back against that um you know oppressive move that is you know like the your experience jared growing up and your experience growing up elizabeth which is that rule that was hammered into ever into the culture so much that it you know it just saturated everything became life which is like it is not you are not Able to be openly queer and be safe, right? Mm-hmm. So anyone who is challenging that rule, like gets slapped back down sometimes, often violently. Um, and that's reinforced in lots of different ways, be again small. So like it is what talking about uh, censorship, talking about representation, talking about diversity, talking about all these things it is talking about power. It's talking about violence, it's talking about aggression. Um, and it is, you know. It seems like very simple on the face of it, like it's a picture book about chickens. And it is, like it is. Uh, and it is a picture book about these two particular cis gay men who are, exist in a universe of other people who are different from them, right? They're, Mr. Nelson is particularly Mr. Nelson, Mr. Watson is particularly Mr. Watson. Um, and they exist, and then that's okay. That is allowable, that is normal and human. And that's why people are coming for it, right? Like that is why people are smashing down on that.
0: hmm um, Well, and, and they're there, there are the people of the of the vein that they think life is pie. And so if if that group of people over there has some power, that means I have less power. Right. <laughs> and we're not going to share and I'm not giving it to you. And right, and I saw a lot joke. of that in that city council meeting that that you could tell that was part of their mentality. And you know, you talk about When you speak out, you know, it was one of the most misogynistic things I've experienced in a long time, a lot of head patting like oh well, we're not going to ban it but I knew what the, the woman who filed the complaint had requested that it be removed so that was what was at issue. And they were trying to deny that that was what, well, we're not banning any book and you're in the wrong meeting and you're this and don't, you're just one, one of them came up to me afterwards and said, your letter was just so aggressive and so strong. And you use the word bigot and you're just shooting your own argument in the foot coming out so strongly. And I was like, I really didn't think it was that, I mean, it was matter of fact, but it wasn't enraged or anything. It was just, here's what I think. And here's the policy of the library. And here's what I think you should follow. And the head patting and the, the she doesn't really know what she's talking about. It's okay. It's okay. You're just too aggressive. I was like, oh God, come on. Let's focus on the actual issue at hand. But, but that's how they try to steal the power. So I'm speaking out. They're trying to steal my power by diminishing the value that I bring to the table and the knowledge and experience. Uh-huh. And the woman there that I was, I told you before we went um to record about the woman, she she got up and was crying because she just couldn't believe that. This was what our community wanted for our children. And as a Christian, she just couldn't believe this book was in our library. And she just, that was her whole argument, really, was this tearful religious argument. And she was a retired teacher. So I don't, I can't quite figure out what power she was trying to maintain through that, I guess, her religious power of lording it over everyone else or forcing it down their throats. But I got up and I said, I wanted to direct it at her, but I figured that would be bad. So I directed it to the city council. I just said the scariest thing for a parent of a gay child is a teacher who would condemn them.
1: Mm.
0: And I went on to describe some of the things we have been through in our community. And afterwards she came up and, and said, thank you for your perspective. And I was like, Oh, well, that's nice. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's, this is not okay that that this is happening. And she said, I'll pray for you. (laughs) And she started to reach toward me and I backed up as fast as I could. Instinctively, I wasn't doing it on purpose. And I was like, we are really happy, but thank you for that. And then she gets to, um, well, that bullying and that hate, he shouldn't have had to experience that. And I said, well, you're right. And I hope that if he were your child, you would be standing here doing the same thing I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And she didn't respond to that, but walked off. And so I'm hoping that I want to believe the praying for us was praying for the things that we've experienced rather than praying the gay away. suspect it was praying the gay way but it was such an interesting thing and i try real hard to talk it in a way that people can receive it so that you don't get ragey or aggressive or any of those things because i think that's counterproductive and i think if you can get to the bottom line of humanity like what is the base i've been in conversations with very vocal um, homophobic people and, and you can usually get them to agree that we don't want these kids to die I think that's a very low bar to step over. But if that's where we have to go to find commonality, I will go there. We don't want these kids to die. And these kids are dying. Mm -hmm. And so in the larger picture of things with all the anti-trans things that are being passed, the censorship is going rampant across the country. The woman in our case said that she was going to move on to the schools. I don't know if she will continue since she lost this one. But she's like, I'm sure there are these books in the schools. And this was a public library. So that was her starting point. So what does all of this speak to? We've got so much going on. I feel like it's so impactful. And even my dad who, who agrees with everything I did said, what's the point? You're not going to win. Little did he know we did, but even he, he's tired and he's getting discouraged. He's 78 and he's just so frustrated with everything that's going on in the world. Yeah. That even he would say, why are you, why are you even doing this? Does it make a difference? And it does feel like a drop in a bucket, you know? Yeah. So what, what, how do y'all see this fitting in? I think it's a catalyst for conversations like this, which are important, but how do we fit into this bigger picture of all of this anti-legislation that's going through for so many groups?
2: I think it's important to distinguish or to look at that the wave of of legislation, right, that is hitting across America. And it is, I think it's striking because there, from what I've read about it, uh it's not a wave of legislation that parents have been like, hi in the middle of the pandemic, by the way, there's all these queer books, like, can you get on this legislatures? Yeah. It's been like smashing through state legislatures and parents like, wait, what now? Like what, like we're doing other stuff. Like what it's not necessarily it's not a grassroots, like, please bring us the censorship legislation. It is coming from the top. It is, it yeah. is national, it is funded, it is focused. You could tell it because a lot of the, the language that is being used um, over and over again to say like, this book is pornographic, this book is blah, blah, blah. It's the same language It's being cut and pasted, just moved throughout the country. And it's, yeah, it's funded by like, absolutely. you know, people at the level of the Koch brothers, like that level of, of funding. And it's it is a very, unfortunately, valuable political fundraising tool. It is a way that legislators can stand up and be like, we have been effective at doing good thing, good, you know, we have been effective at doing the legislature because we have got this thing for you, we can get behind this. And it is also a sign of, you know, we have nothing else to offer you besides these culture wars. Yeah,
0: well, and from what I've read too, along those lines, I think they think Roe v. Wade is in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so the next big issue is, is gay marriage. I mean, that was something that was done and now they want to undo it. So it's, yeah. it's all these dog whistles really to get this attention, to get the public funding. And there's know, a real political religious.
1: benefit to um, Andrea, as you mentioned, it's, it's funded at the level of the Koch brothers and it's a strategy at the level of Steve Bannon, whose famous uh, you know, strategy is flood the zone with shit. Mm -hmm. and so you you ram through as much as many things that are truly extreme and hateful as you can and um it makes the people who are working many jobs have families are in the middle of a pandemic are just trying to get by and would never agree to this it leaves them with their heads spinning and so um they feel the, the benefit is um, the folks who would fight back are demoralized. Mm-hmm. They're exhausted. Uh, they throw up their hands. They just look elsewhere. Um, and you you can basically ram through and keep going. And I think. Well, and the money the-
0: factor, too. I mean, I think one of the things. So I was in a meeting. We're doing um, a needs assessment for the LGBTQ community in the Mobile in Baldwin County, which is where I live. And so we had this whole meeting the other day on data, and it was all of the organizations who um, help. So there was an, an AIDS organization, there were two youth uh, groups for LGBTQ, kids. there was an adult nonprofit, um, several different groups. And then there were some individuals, and I'm like, the Baldwin County. Loudmouth, I guess. Um, so I'm in this meeting, not really affiliated with any particular organization, just listening. And there was a trans woman there who's a friend of mine. I did an interview with her and she um, was on the verge of tears because this was all about data. How many, how many do we have in the community? What are the needs that they have? What kind of access are they getting to the things that they need in life? Um, and so it was very dry. You know, it was just very data driven. And it's in the midst of right before Ivy signed the anti-trans bill into law here. And right, I think it was right after the don't say gay bill was signed in Florida. And she was just like, what's the point? Like, why aren't we shouting from the rooftops about these, these legislations and the bills and all that. And had this, just this moment, it was heartbreaking. And the woman who was leading the data, discussion handled it beautifully. I thought she said, you know, we need to take a moment and acknowledge that the people in the room are feeling this way because it's valid, Yeah. but we need money. And the only way we can get money from the people who have it is with data. And it's a step that has never been taken where we live because we are so far behind, um, socially and, and every Alabama's, you know, behind on everything, but it's true. I mean, so we've got to take the steps to get the data that's going to get us the money, that's going to get us a foundation from which to argue, right? But how do we manage someone like my friend who was having this, this moment of of just absolute desperation and devastation that yeah. she feels like she's in jeopardy all the time? Yeah, Um so, so to me there's there's this big gap between being able to make that progress and, and finding the money and the support that we can get to actually make effective change and also dealing with the emotional impact to those who are being affected every day and they can't wait five years for our our groups in our state to mobilize and, and fundraise. So right. do you have any thoughts on how we can bridge that gap or, I mean, I know we just have to go through the process, but it's incredibly frustrating and demoralizing, especially for someone who's trans right now.
2: Yeah. Um, you asked um, You asked something early on uh, about what is the, when everything is so overwhelming, I and mean, we're talking about despair here, like what is the point? What is one, when all these things are being smashed through and smashed through and, and keep coming back and smash, like. I don't, I should start by saying like, I don't have definitive answers for yeah. I me. Mean,
0: I mean, none of us do, but, us do.
2: but <laughs> two things. Uh, you standing up in front of this, the city council, even if you couldn't even get in that door, like say you couldn't you, you couldn't even get past the door. Like you were just standing up even in your own living room or among your family or among your neighbors or among your school, you know, community and being like, this is wrong. You asserting that even as a single individual is powerful. And it is meaningful because your family member, everyone sees that. Everyone, like your family sees that. The people in your community who are closeted see that. The people who are not queer in your community see that. And bad things stay every day until someone's like, this is messed up. Like, let's stop, like, you, we all accepted this like forever because, you know, it's been the rules and whatever, it's like the temperature, but wait, like, what is actually at stake here? And like, it's always people who are stopping and being like, mm, wait, mm. and even just for yourself. Like, I, I think about this uh, a lot when I, when thinking about like just overwhelming catastrophe and disaster and mm-hmm. what is the value if you, if you, Feel like you you are losing, right? you feel yeah. like you are being beaten down all the time, um, and the exhaustion, and the trauma, and the the grief, which I think your friend is speaking, you're t- so speaking to, with talking about your friend. Yeah. It it matters, even if it doesn't necessarily do anything to own your own truth, and to just take the moment and be like, even if I am feel like I'm speaking into the void here, like, this is wrong, and this matters. And that humanity, that um, the grief, the trauma, the humanity, the, the frustration, the, you know, like, all that stuff, I think it's so important. And it's, it's so, um, I, I don't want to make it seem that, like, like negative things have to have a productive value in order to be meaningful, because pain is still pain, you know, like pain just exists as pain. Uh, but it informs, like the the political movement, the power, the fighting, the, the struggle, that is informed from that core of humanity and that is fueled by it and it, it needs to be. But you can't lose sight of the humanity and the grief and the pain and then what that is too. Like it can't, it's, there's room for both, right? Like there is the spreadsheet of the data is like, well, we can't this, we can't like focus, like I, I, local groups will sometimes be like, we're not going to focus on the Senate race this time, we're going to focus on local city council because we can push that through and just like have defined political objectives too. But then also like there is the work that communities do among you know members who share those identities to save each other, which is to, to sustain each other and to hold each other and to support each other, which all of us have experienced in our lives in different ways, right? Like in moments of struggle, right? who brings food over, who watches the kids, who walks your dog for you, who goes to the hospital and picks you up and drives you home, like all that stuff. Like, I think it's just, it's meaningful because it's part of being a human being and is one of the most beautiful things, the powerful things about being a human being is uh, being able to like access and strengthen and, um, you know, experience that those moments of humanity and if it connects you with other people um or if it sets an example for other people so that they feel seen or they bring new people into your life that you know weren't before um that is also important you know uh or if they're you know like things stick with people right like like years from now we've all had moments in our lives right where like someone said something and then like years later you're like I always think about that moment Mm -hmm. and then when you encounter a parallel moment in your own life you're like you know no I'm gonna do this because I remember that happening and like this matters and like this there's always you know big ripple effects in there too but I think I um I love this like uh it's a it's a jewish um i'm jewish uh it's a it's a jewish philosophy that was around in like the 1800s in hungary i'm like i I don't know that much about it but it's called the musar movement and it was this philosophy idea of like uh the rabbi who developed it was, was saying that uh i started out trying to save the world and then i realized like like too big right so i start with myself and then I go to my family. And then for my family, I go to my community. And for my community, I go to my town. And for my town, I go to the world, like outside-in kind of thing. And I found that being very profound. <laughs>
1: Sorry, and I, 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 mean, know. Was, I think Andrea, you said basically everything. I, the only thing I would <laughs> add is um, the marginalized, the vulnerable have never had the money have never had the, the backing of power. Yeah. Yep. And what has always overcome the brutality of, uh, of, of power has been people um, connecting with one another and fighting back. And so um, the future isn't written. Andrea Chalupa, who, who runs the, the podcast Gaslight Nation, mm-hmm. that I highly recommend, um, lots of reasons always says that the future is not written but it's really not written if the people who um, have morals and principles and care and love in their heart don't speak up uh for the things worth fighting for and so to do the right thing to speak up to um to identify the things you care most deeply about and and um to do the to uh Recognize that that the fight is worth having does have, uh, as Andrea mentioned, uh, effects. I think that do contribute uh, good to the world. It might not, but but it rarely is seen immediately, and um, and in a lot of ways, it's like having faith or trust that that it will. Um, and part of part of that faith or trust is just um, knowing that uh, you're spending your life. Uh, fighting for something that you know is right and we know is right, and um, i can't think of another another way to be personally that's that's how I've always been, but um, the future is definitely written by the powerful and the um, destructive if people like us don't don't raise our voices and fight back. Um, I always think of seeds. that person who said to you during the during the city council meeting, you know oh well well Um, your son should not have been treated that way, but um, it's actions like the attempt to erase a story that very gently and um, almost just matter of factly Mm -hmm. presents a same sex couple. That kind of erasure plants a seed of hate and a seed of hate will grow and be destructive in ways we don't know And there were probably all sorts of seeds of hate that surrounded your son um, and surrounded all of us that, you know, led to your son feeling, you know, unsafe or just anyone feeling unsafe or actually and actually being attacked. Uh, You know, no one deserves that. Yeah, no one needs to be attacked and killed or no one deserves that. Um, But and to say, but, you know, and try to add a caveat to Mm -hmm to it it, it, that's that's you can't do it because it's all one and the same it's all connected and so I like to think that we we just and and Andrea you talked about the fact that we plant seeds like Greta Thunberg um sitting outside the the governmental body you know just a single I think at that time she was 11 or 12 with a sign you know um she may have thought this isn't going to do anything but it's all I can do Mm -hmm. and as a result um you know her message spread across the globe um i think you just never know and but it's the right thing to do
0: yeah and i think i i used to have on the fridge um the quote that the only thing necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing mm-hmm. and i've tried to raise my kids like that that's that's how we lose the power that's how we lose the fight if this good good people do nothing and um hopefully, you know, one of the things that propels me to keep speaking up is that I'm not going to let my kids see me not speak up. You know, yeah. if yeah. I want to teach them that they need to stand up for what's right or stand up for those who have less than they do, then I've got to model that behavior. And, and I think you're right, Andrea and, and Jared, that the experiences I've, you know, you want to just be able to change the world. is so frustrating and so many injustices, but when you start with the one person, um, And you watch a change happen. There was a there was a kid who was couch surfing, who was gay, and and it was a gay black kid, which is in Alabama, even harder. And uh, he needed a place to stay. So a woman from my former church that we left, who was not homophobic, called me and said, Can you meet with me with this kid? Because I think you're connected with a lot of these groups. And I said, Sure. He didn't know that we had a nonprofit for youth. In the community. He didn't know that the, he was like 18 or 19. So he was on the cusp between youth and adult. And he didn't know about the adult uh, nonprofit that we had in the, count, the county. He didn't know that we had a bar that had drag shows. His dream in life is to be a drag queen. He is the cutest little thing you've ever seen. So he didn't have a car. He was trying to, he worked hard. He was working every day, trying to get to his aunts. So she ended up taking him in. Both of us had said we would take him in. She had more open rooms. We have five children and with the pandemic, some of them were still back home. And uh, so she had the space in the bathroom that he could have that he wouldn't have to share. And, uh, but I said, call me and help me whenever, if you need help, I'll help you call me. I'll pitch in until you get a car. So one day he calls and he's like, I need to ride to work. Can you help me? And I said, well, I've got a work meeting. I can't do it, but my son, my youngest son can do it. And um, he said, well, I don't want to make him uncomfortable. And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, you know, I'm kind of, I've got a lot of drama. He was kind of flamboyant, you know, he was, he had this big, adorable personality. And I said, you know what he he grew up watching drag race with his brother. And you know, you're with the right people. He is not going to be uncomfortable whatsoever. So you just put that out of your head. So then I have to go to my 18 year old, who's very shy and very quiet and doesn't talk to anybody. And I'm like, you have to talk to him because he's going to think it's about him. And really it's about you. I'm like, ask him about his job. Ask him about school. Say something so this poor kid doesn't think that you're uncomfortable. But that's the reality that he lives in. He uh-huh. is afraid that my child is going to be made to feel uncomfortable by his existence. Uh-huh. And I was like, Mm-mm, we are not going there. So the other day, I haven't seen him in like a year. He um he drove by me in the parking lot at the grocery store, and he's like, Miss Elizabeth. <laughs> he's like, Hey, Queen. You know, he's, <laughs> in his big exuberant personality, he's got a car. He's got an apartment. He's got a better job. He's working at a resort now instead of Domino's, so he's making a lot better money. He's happy. He's got his friends. He's connected with people um, that are in the, in the same situation that he is, that are young, that need a little support and help, that, that need a community. He's, he's found some people in that community. And so sometimes when I get down in the dumps about things like this, I, I just think, okay, that one boy because we were able to give him a place to live for a limited period of time. And this is what he said that I love the best. I, when we were questioning him and meeting with him, I said, okay, I, I'm not assuming anything, but I have to ask if you're going to stay with someone who has children at home, do you have any drug issues? Do you have any alcohol issues? And he goes, no, I'm just a good little Christian boy, gay boy, trying to get by. <laughs> I was like, you were so sweet. I want to just. Squeeze you. But that was his that's how he saw himself. I'm just a good little Christian gay kid trying to get by, but the world doesn't see him that way. Uh-huh. And if one person can reach out to one kid who's couch surfing and give them a place to live, he wasn't even there a year. It was less than a year. And he got a, it enabled him to save up for a car, to save up for an apartment, get a roommate, have a life, you know. Uh-huh. And a lot of these kids who couch surf don't have the opportunity to have a life because they're they end up homeless, yeah. you know, and their access to things. So I think if you, you have to focus on what you can do individually right now. And sometimes it's as simple
1: as giving a kid a room to sleep, you know, yeah. <laughs> and what's, what, what's so alarming about the, the rash of book bannings, especially the way they target trans stories and LGBT stories um, um, across the, the nation right now, is, is a lot of what you were just talking about is that each, of, each one of us on this call, I think, have in our own ways and for different reasons developed a sharp sense of empathy, which is the ability to try and imagine the experience of others yeah. who are unlike yourself. And when you can do that, you are able to identify, for example, this young person being at particular risk for mm-hmm. um, having a rougher life than anyone should ever have. And not just because they're a young person and don't know what they're doing, but because of, you know, who they are. And you were able to imagine that and think through it and, and understand the stakes for this person, yeah. that the stakes were very high. And mm-hmm. what's terrifying is that when we remove when when schools and school boards are and citizens are acting to remove stories that allow um, other children and adults who might read them also who allow them to be able to peer into it's it's the famous phrase windows and uh, mirrors and sliding glass doors you know Mm -hmm. the kids who that kid that that you took under your wing um needs access to materials that um help him see himself in stories to understand i'm not alone Mm -hmm. and all the people who are not like that person need to be able to read those stories and um should read those stories in order to see wow there are people who are unlike me who are deserving of respect and um, there are syst- there are systematized uh, there are systems that um, really threaten these people and it's mm-hmm. it's my job to understand that and also help out yeah. and so windows mirrors sliding glass doors that these are being all of these are being shattered by by book bannings you know mm-hmm. it's trying to create a monolithic culture and that's that's always the way towards like, in, in human inhumanity,
0: yeah, well, and it, it, it when you talk when you talk to people on a human level, you realize we all want the same things we want to be accepted, we want to be loved, we want to be valued, we want to exist, we don't want to live in fear of existing i mean it's it's the basic human needs that need to be met uh, all other things aside we are all looking for the same exact things so um to to wrap us up because I could talk to you guys all day um, so in the vein of the gift of the struggle um and I'm, I am with you, Andrew, pain can exist in and of itself to experience the pain, but also the way that I've tried to get through my life is to find the gift and the struggle. And what is it that I've learned or what is it that I can help someone else through with my experience, um, and know that they can come out the other side. Um, how is it that, you know, one of the people in my life who has said something profound to me was that my, my son's doctor, when he had epilepsy, and that was how this started with the There's no gift in a sick child, but there are gifts in the moments that surround you and your family during those times. And the neurologist told me the only person who will ever disable him is you. And I have applied that to so many things in my life, not just sickness, but am I limiting a child with a rule that's arbitrary or not intended to protect? You know, am I? Limiting an experience that I'm having myself because I'm afraid of what's going to happen or what it is. So the only person who's going to limit me is me. The only person who's going to call him disabled was me. You know. So am I not letting him do this particular activity to keep him safe or because I'm afraid? You know. So I that that was something that I think of almost every day, and I don't know if he has any idea that that has impacted me that way. And that was a big gift in that struggle of him going through that that particular illness but I think it applies to so many things in life. So when you look at this world that we're living in and going through and the things like when, when their book bands come forward, what is the gift that surrounds those situations for each of you?
2: That is a good question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sometimes it's hard Yeah, you have to look for it hard. I mean, for me, it's meeting people like you and feeling less alone in a very red state where I'm trying to make a difference and feel sometimes like it's just hopeless, but to meet people like you who are in the fight with me, you know, side-by-side side, trying to make change wherever we are, we're in three different locations. That to me is comforting and inspiring. Um, so that, that's sort of how I try to look at some of these things, the people that I get to meet and, and hopefully make a difference for. So I'm sure that both of you have similar experiences with with fighting this fight because this wasn't the first time this this book is there's there's been an attempt to ban
1: yeah
2: honestly i I feel oh sorry go ahead jared
1: i was going to say just that i feel the same way the people that i meet um i've I've received messages from um both librarians and uh young adults like recently graduated from undergrad Mm -hmm. who happened upon either my tweets uh or andrea's about a couple different situations this this winter and um it meant the world to me to be able to connect with that person and and you know just for the moment you know connect to somebody i'd never met before and and realize that uh, and, and I guess it's in that kind of moment that that I see visibly that oh, speaking up does make a difference. Um, mm-hmm. And though these two people reached out personally to me, there have there have to be more. And so that's part of like uh, that is a gift is to is to um, is to feel like uh, community is being built. Um, it just looks a lot different than what people think it ought to look like or mm-hmm. or how it looks, but um, yeah.
2: Um, I, Elizabeth, like one of the reasons I was very excited to, uh, talk to you today besides just you know talk to you today was, um, you know, I went into this podcast thinking like, I really want to meet this woman who's doing this work. Okay. I am so amazed and, and impressed and just, it so touches me that you are doing this work where you are. Like, I, you know, I have my identities and I see, I make books and it is important, but also like I, I, you know, I am not there and I am not doing that work in the same way. And I I feel very impressed by you and <laughs> grateful to you uh, for for what you are doing. Um, it matters so much. It is inspiring to me
0: that you are doing I, I, this. I really appreciate that because that's that's not how my community here usually feels.
1: <laughs> I echo everything i are far outside of <laughs> <laughs> i i I got to speak with graduate students in a children's uh children's materials class library graduate students last week and i told I told them all about you elizabeth and <laughs> part of the gift of having that you for me is that i've you know I've always been told by professors and just experts on intellectual freedom that um you know uh, censorship is is fought back most effectively at the local level, mm-hmm. and that people like Andrea or I, while, the, you know, while things are being debated and considered um, speaking up is, is often uh, counterproductive unless done in a specific way, it really matters that local folks organize or that there be one person who gets people organized and that was you. And so part of the gift was A, meeting you, B, seeing somebody fight so hard um, for their child and for books and for the children in your community uh, having access to them, but also, um, on a sort of other level, seeing firsthand that yes, it's true. Censorship mm-hmm. and book bans are fought back at the local level. And here is a shining example. So thank you for that. Yeah. For all well, thank you. It is a
2: model and a, an inspiration and a, a reassurance too to a lot of other folks who've taken heart from like posting about what happened. Um, with you, but it is possible because you read the news and it is 99% awful, right? It's
0: all almost negative. And I still can't get over that we want it. I think the city attorney had a hand in realizing that this was something they didn't want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're Typically, we're in the news down in our area for bad things. Um, and so I think he just didn't want to go down that path. And he he kind of took them by the hand and they were all very angry that they had to vote that way, but they did it. And I'll take an angry vote. over. And that's an
1: important us. lesson. Uh, a lot of city councils, a lot of library boards, a lot of school boards do not want to deal mm-hmm. with protracted, loud, aggressive uh, meetings. Um, and right now the right, uh, the right wing has the upper hand because they're organized, funded and very, very loud. Yeah. And so another gift of, of this situation is it showed me by you collecting those 16, 17 letters binding them together, getting them to each member of city council, it's, like Andrea mentioned, a model that I've told other people now, mm-hmm. do this work right now before there's a book banning, look, see who feels just as passionate as you right now, so you have a network that can be activated when it comes to your town or your school.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's completely important, and it's, I accidentally landed in that role, but I'm happy to do it, <laughs> you yeah. uh, I, I needed a good little fight in my life, <laughs> last month or two so it was, it was good well I want everybody to be able to reach both of you and to take a look at all of the things that you've produced creatively um as a writer I always appreciate getting the word of other writers
1: out so Jarrett where can people find you uh Jarrett and also on twitter at Jarrett dapier two r's two t's Jarrett dapier yeah
2: all right and Andrea I'm uh uh I don't think anyone else has my name. So if you you can find my books in a library or bookstore, if you look up uh, Surumi, which is T-S-U-R-U-M-I, I uh, I will pop up um, or this one sewage company in Japan that also has the same. Which is clearly not you. you. (laughs) No, but I'm very curious about that. But um, yeah, my website is um, my first name, last name, andreasurumi.com. And I'm more active on Instagram because it shows more art, um, at a Surumi. so please follow me there. Thank
1: you so I'm much also well. on Instagram and I should say I, I am more active on there. It just feels like a more welcoming place also. Yeah. At least within the <laughs> network that is. I'm in there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I, I could, I, like I said, I could talk to you for hours. I think there's so much work that needs to be done and it's helpful to talk to people who, who are on the same page with all that. So thank you for everything that you've done. And um, I look forward to
1: talking to you again. You're welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.